Hey, this is Brad. We're off today, but please enjoy this encore presentation of the Bradcast. Mr. Speaker, one of the earlier speakers said, this is the most dramatic change in labor law in 80 years. And I say, thank God. In the late 70s, a CEO made 35 times the worker. Today, it's three to 400 times the worker. And our friends on the other side, running around with their hair on fire. Heaven forbid we pass something that's going to help the damn workers in the United States of America. Heaven forbid we tilt the balance that has been going in the wrong direction for 50 years. We talk about pensions, you complain. We talk about the minimum wage increase, you complain. We talk about giving them the right to organize, you complain. But if we were passing a tax cut here, you'd be all getting in line to vote yes for it. Now stop talking about Dr. Seuss and start working with us on behalf of the American workers. Yes. Sing it, Congressman Tim Ryan. Amen, brother. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. It is today. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka, California, on KGOE, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. And yes, we stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio. And Detour Talk, blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us once again for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. Yes, that was uh, Congressman Tim Ryan uh, of Ohio there at the top of the show. Uh, he ought to run for president. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway. I, anyway. Yes. Yeah. He, he he did run for president. Yeah. Uh, in any event, uh, he was railing there. Loved it uh, at the top. Um, it, what was what he was railing about was the Pro Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, which labor experts are describing as the most pro-union, pro-labor, pro-middle-class bill to come out of the. 
uh, out of Congress in at least 80 years. And the good news is it was passed earlier this week in the U.S. House after Ryan's colorful argument there in its favor with the votes of virtually every single Democrat in the House. And by the way, even a few Republicans. And yet, at the same time, there is a uh, a big organizing effort going on right now to unionize an Amazon warehouse for the very first time down in Alabama. Uh, And in both cases, for the pro-act and the unionization vote taking place right now outside of Birmingham, President Biden has, at least so far, made good on his campaign promise to be, in his words, the most pro-union president you've ever seen. Now, that said, given both Republican and Democratic presidents in recent years, that is not necessarily saying all of that much. But hey, it's it's saying something. It's something. Uh, And and we'll find out how much of a something it is. Uh, We will be joined momentarily by a very colorful labor historian who suggests... Uh, that what we are seeing so far from this president could, in fact, make him not only the most pro-union president in modern times, but maybe even ever. If he keeps it up, we will see. Uh, but first, some uh, very quick news today. Also, I think most of it good. Uh, there is a lot going on that we're just going to have to try and catch up with in the days ahead, I guess. Senate confirmation of Joe Biden's cabinet selections is finally gaining some speed. Today, Ohio Congresswoman Marsha Fudge was confirmed as the first black woman to lead the Department of Housing and Urban Development in more than four decades. She has vowed to address systemic racial inequities as the new secretary of HUD. Judge Merrick Garland, formerly Barack Obama's pick for the U.S. Supreme Court, who Republicans refused to even give a hearing for a year, as they prepared to steal and pack the high court under Donald Trump. Boy, I'm hoping Merrick Garland holds a grudge. Do you think? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, Anyway, he was confirmed as the nation's top law enforcement official. Finally, our new attorney general, by a 70-30 vote in the Senate, placing the widely respected veteran judge in the post as Joe Biden has vowed to restore the Justice Department's reputation for independence. I suspect we will have much to talk about there in the days ahead. Do you think? (laughs) And the uh, biggest news that I don't even think Democrats fully appreciate how big it actually is yet. Biden's uh, Joe Biden's enormous one point nine trillion dollar covid relief and stimulus bill, the American Rescue Plan, has finally received final passage in the U.S. House. Uh, it will now head to the White House to be signed into law by Joe Biden within hours. And yet, I have still not received my $1,400 check yet. Oh, so Biden's failed already? <laughs> What's up with that, Joe? Uh, I really do hope that Democrats spend some time messaging on how huge this bill actually is. Uh, really, it is the most progressive bill to be passed by Congress in decades in all sorts of ways. Uh, Just to give you a a quick reminder of what's in it, those $1,400 stimulus checks uh, for individuals capped at uh, those making $80,000 per year. 
uh, a $300 per week unemployment insurance extension through September. Payments, uh, and here's where it gets really progressive, payments of up to $3,600 per child. This and uh, other expanded aid measures in the bill will benefit more than 93% of American children. $350 billion for states and state and local governments who have been slammed over the past year by this crisis. $86 billion will go to shoring up failed pensions. $34 billion will go to expanding Obamacare subsidies. So for those people who may not have qualified before, it's time to go to healthcare.gov and check again very soon. And yes, it also includes uh, $14 billion for vaccine distribution. And of course, it passed both houses of Congress uh, and much more, by the way. Uh, it passed both houses of Congress without one single vote from Republicans, not one. In response, by the way, uh, the Dow shot up today. Really? It closed at a record high. So Democrats, you own this. And I hope you will do so proudly because uh, Republicans, and it is unlike them, uh, have not yet been able to figure out how to actually counter the American Rescue Plan with any sort of cogent message in opposition. Largely because it does so much good stuff, frankly, that they have to kind of lie about it, which, of course, is also unlike them, isn't it? <laughs> Senator Rick Scott uh, came out swinging on Tuesday with perhaps the most disingenuous argument against it yet. He said, quote, who gets hurt? <laughs> poor families, he said on Fox News. They're not helping poor families with this. They're hurting poor families. That, of course, is a ridiculous lie. The package is targeted at low-income people and families, and researchers have already found that it will, re will profoundly lower the poverty rate. Columbia University Center, Center on Poverty and Social Policy found that it would have cut in half child poverty. Cut it in half. This one bill alone, and it will reduce adult poverty by a quarter. A new study from the Urban Institute found that the package would reduce the overall poverty rate in 2021 by more than a third, specifically lowering the rate of poverty by 42% for black people, 39% for Hispanic people, 34% for white people. Other than that, yes, Senator Scott, it totally hurts poor families. Good luck with that one, Senator. Uh, Senator Roy Blunt, a, a Missouri Republican, argued, quote, nothing in the bill we're talking about is designed to get kids back in school. That, too, <laughs> is also a lie. These are just ridiculously, like, dumb lies. Uh, well, you know what? They're, you know, they say them on Fox News, and so they There is no counter. There is no counter. Yes. That, apparently, is what we are here for. Uh, the bill includes, in fact, $130 billion for K-12 through schools. Uh, it uh, bulk of the funds can be used to update school ventilation systems, reduce class sizes to implement social distancing buy personal protective equipment, hire support staff, all of which experts uh, and including the CDC say will ultimately help open uh, reopen schools and allow the students to return safely. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy took to the floor on Wednesday during the debate on the final passage of the bill to, demo to bemoan it as, quote, 
socialist, of course, Congressman John Yarmuth, a Democrat from Kentucky, uh, responded directly afterwards, um, dismissing the uh, leader's scare tactics by saying, quote, if Democrats had a potluck picnic, Republicans would call it socialism. Uh, so Republicans uh, knee jerk and disorganized, some might say desperate attacks on the bill belie, in fact, its bipartisan popularity. Sure, not in Congress, but out here uh, in the rest of the world, a morning consult poll published Wednesday shows that 75 percent of registered voters, including 59 percent of Republicans, support the package. Ninety percent of Democrats do, by the way, but 59 percent of Republicans. That is a majority, in case you're not good at math. Democrats <laughs> have been touting the bipartisan nature of the bill, despite the lack of congressional Republican support, citing its popularity with the people, including Republican voters, and yes, state-level, at least some state-level GOP lawmakers across the country. Nonetheless, the media... Doing the bidding of the right, as usual, they still cannot understand why Democrats did not try to be more bipartisan in their efforts. While the good news, or so it seems for the moment, is that even guys like Chuck Schumer appear to have learned the lesson. It only took a, you know, a decade or two, but we'll take it. Here's Schumer uh, today, I think, with CNN's Anderson Cooper admitting that Democrats made big mistakes in the past in trying to work with Republicans who were negotiating in bad faith. As we saw, for example, after Obama came to office and uh, Democrats failed to go big. Uh, as they are now doing with the American Rescue Plan, um, because they tried to work with with uh, Republicans on the stimulus plan back there, uh, and uh, after the uh, Great Recession, and they ended up simply hamstringing the economy for years. Some Senate Republicans did meet with President Biden early on. Uh, Susan Collins, uh, Lisa Murkowski, you know, Mitt Romney. W were could more have been done to to get some of them on board? No, they're, they're, you know, we made a big mistake in 2009 and 10. Susan Collins was part of that mistake. We cut back on the uh, stimulus uh, dramatically, and we stayed in recession for five years. And the, what was offered by the Republicans was so far away from what's needed, so far away from what Biden proposed, that he thought that they were not being serious and wanting to really negotiate. But this bill is so overwhelmingly strong in helping poor and working people in America that I think it's getting huge plaudits uh, from the American people. When people start getting their checks, when they start getting the vaccines, when school starts opening, when kids can get out of poverty, that's huge. That's huge, Anderson. G g if it is that popular, given, the, given that, uh, or assuming that, despite that, there's still this unified Republican opposition to it, are you hopeful Republicans will join Democrats on anything or Democrats will join Republicans on anything in the near future? Well, I always say we want to work with Republicans where we can, but we have to get big, bold change done. And that is our number one priority. I, you know, have a hope. I'm always an optimist. You know that, Anderson, that now that Republicans have seen we can do it without them, that they'll realize they ought to try to work with us. But we're not going to make the mistake of 2008 and 9. So I never thought I'd say this, Des. 
Good for Chuck Schumer. <laughs> yeah, that's unusual. Uh, and, of course, he got this passed under reconciliation, uh, how they're going to pass everything else without Republican support. Well, that's another matter. But, you know, uh, today we will take what we can get. And now it also looks like Democrats have learned another vital lesson, that it is long overdue for Democrats to get back on the side of labor and the working class. And though I don't know how they're going to overcome the filibuster to do it, looks like the U.S. House, at least, has figured that out. And happily, so has Joe Biden, it seems. Labor historian Professor Nelson Lichtenstein joins us next to talk about that and what is now going on down in Alabama, where workers are, yes, trying to organize into a union at an Amazon warehouse. We're back with that and much more today right here on a busy broadcast that I hope we get to end with a song today. So don't touch that dial. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Desi. The broadcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an encore presentation of the broadcast. Let's work. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Before he took office, President Joe Biden vowed to be, quote, the most pro-union president you've ever seen. And indeed, as the Democratic Socialist Jacobin magazine highlights this week, quote, just hours after being sworn, the new president fired Peter Robb, general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board, who previously worked for union-busting law firms and the Reagan administration, during the professional air traffic controllers organization strike and Biden subsequently issued executive orders guaranteeing collective bargaining rights and a $15 per hour minimum wage for federal employees and government contract workers, which is actually a lot of workers. Uh, that was what he did just after taking office. In recent weeks, a number of pro-labor folks have now rung in to say that, yes, in fact, Joe Biden, so far anyway, has been the most pro-worker, pro-labor, pro-union president in decades, maybe even ever. While that may be a fairly low bar these days, unfortunately, is it true? I suspect my guest may have an opinion on that momentarily. But the new president has certainly been talking loud and clear and uh, taking clear stances on behalf of collective bargaining rights that I, at least, do not recall seeing from any president at least in my lifetime. On Tuesday, the U.S. House passed the Protecting the Right to Organize, or PRO Act, which Georgia's Democratic Congressman Sanford Bishop, a supporter along with almost every other Democrat in the House, described as, quote, the most significant piece of legislation for workers' rights in decades. Is he right about that? I suspect my guest may have an opinion on that as well. The measure protects the right to organize in every state and protects workers from anti-union intimidation and retaliation. Yes, yes. 
even in Orwellian-described so-called right-to-work states. The PRO Act was passed in the House with 225 votes. Despite their new pretend claims of late to be the party of the working class, just five Republicans voted for the most pro-labor, pro-working class measure to come up for a floor vote in years. For the record, those five Republicans were co-sponsors Jeff Van Drew, who was a, is formerly a Democrat, and Chris Smith, both of them from New Jersey, Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania, John Katko from New York, Don Young of Alaska, and just one Democrat, just one out of the entire House caucus, voted against the bill. That would be Congressman Henry Cuellar from Texas. But before passage of the Pro-Union Pro-Act this week in the House, President Biden issued a statement of support describing the bill as one that, quote, would dramatically enhance the power of workers to organize and collectively bargain for better wages, benefits and working conditions declaring that this bill was needed, uh, quote, to summon a new wave of worker power to create an economy that works for everyone. He added that starts with rebuilding unions who, he argued, built the middle class. He then went on to urge Congress to send the PRO Act to his desk to seize the opportunity to build a future that reflects working people's courage and ambition and offers not only good jobs with a real choice to join a union, but the dignity, equity, shared prosperity and common purpose that hardworking people who built this country and make it run deserve. But even with his powerful statement of support for the PRO Act and passage in the U.S. House, the measure, like so many, uh, so many long overdue pieces of progressive legislation right now still faces a huge hurdle in the U.S. Senate, where it is set to run smack dab into the still unreformed Senate filibuster, requiring 60 votes for passage in a currently 50-50 U.S. Senate. Biden's unambiguous support, nonetheless, for the PRO Act came a week or so after what many had also described as the most powerful and even surprising, according to Jacobin magazine, uh, the most powerful statement from a president in support of unions that they had ever seen. Again, we'll see if my guest agrees. Biden released a two-minute video in support of the ongoing attempt going on right now in Bessemer, Alabama, just outside of Birmingham, to unionize workers at an Amazon warehouse down there. If successful, it would be the first such unionization of an Amazon warehouse in the nation. Workers in Alabama, Biden said in a tweet which accompanied his video statement, and all across America are voting on whether to organize a union in their workplace. Though he didn't mention Amazon by name, he did cite Alabama specifically and went on to say, quote, it's a vitally important choice one that should be made without intimidation or threats by employers, adding every worker should have a free and fair choice to join a union. I've long said America wasn't built by Wall Street. It was built by the middle class, and unions built the middle class. Unions put power in the hands of workers. They level the playing field. They give you a stronger voice for your health, your safety, higher wages, protections from racial discrimination and sexual harassment. Unions lift up workers, both union and non-union, and especially black and brown workers. I've made it clear, made it clear when I was running, 
that my administration's policy would be to support unions organizing and the right to collectively bargain. I'm keeping that promise. You should all remember the National Labor Relations Act didn't just say that unions are allowed to exist. It said that we should encourage unions. So let me be really clear. It's not up to me to decide whether anyone should join a union. But let me be even more clear. It's not up to an employer to decide that either. The choice to join a union is up to the workers, full stop, full stop. Today and over the next few days and weeks, workers in Alabama and all across America are voting on whether to organize a union in their workplace. This is vitally important, a vitally important choice as America grapples with the deadly pandemic the economic crisis and the reckoning on race, what it reveals, the deep disparities that still exist in our country. And there should be no intimidation, no coercion, no threats, no anti-union propaganda. No supervisor, no supervisor should confront employees about their union preferences. You know, every worker should have a free and fair choice to join a union. The law guarantees that choice. And it's your right, not that of an employer. It's your right. No employer can take that right away. So make your voice heard. God bless you all, and may God protect the workers and their families who are trying to figure out how to make it, make it fairly. Thank you. That was, of course, President Joe Biden about one week ago in a uh, strong statement of support for the unionization effort, specifically down in Alabama at the Amazon warehouse down there uh, and more broadly around the country. Joining us now is Nelson Lichtenstein, a labor uh, labor historian and distinguished professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor and Democracy. He's the author of some 16 books including recent works such as Achieving Workers' Rights in the Global Economy. He is an inducted member of the Society of American Historians and winner of the 2012 Sidney Hillman Foundation's Sal Stetton Award for Lifetime Achievement in Labor History. Professor Lichtenstein, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Glad to be here. I, uh, I want to discuss both the PRO Act and what I believe is a landmark attempt uh, to organize at Amazon in Alabama. But first, let me let me get your take on that video statement from the president. I was happy to see it. I was impressed with it. It's sort of a classic Joe Biden, no-nonsense take. But I think I was even more surprised to see the reaction from a lot of folks, many of them labor folks, who actually seemed surprised by that statement. I'm, I'm wondering what your take is and, and why it was such a welcome surprise from so many people. Well, it was a, a very forceful statement, and, and I think the, the, what made it different from other, other Democratic presidents who, who, have, who, have, who have talked about level playing fields and uh, fairness for workers and, and the need to raise wages, that Clinton, Obama did that, even Carter did that. And what was really uh, remarkable, and I think did make it striking and, and, and reminiscent of the 1930s even, was, uh, and, and you played it, his, his uh, denunciation of employer intimidation hmm. and, his, and his very explicit assertion that it's up to the workers themselves uh, to, to decide. This is sort of, if I could use the phrase, an originalist uh-huh. uh, interpretation of the Wagner Act passed in 1935, which was, 
uh, workers have the right to form, quote, unions of their own choosing. Subsequently, in the many decades of judicial opinion and, and interpretation, uh, the employer has become a contestant. And this is true in every campaign, including mm-hmm. that in Alabama, where the employers have meetings, they have captive audience meetings, they hand out literature, they do this, they do that. Uh, sometimes legally, sometimes illegally. But even if it's only, le- if everything they do is legal, and in, and in fact, uh, most of these big firms have law firms that tell them, yes, you must obey the law. But even mm-hmm. the law is so, uh, uh, is so, gives such latitude to what employers want that it, 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 it is, in fact, intimidation. And uh, Biden denounced that. that. And that, I think, that was different. Mm-hmm. That was different. And naturally, it, it, it doesn't make him, I mean, from his point of view, it's a little dangerous. He wants a, a kind of a wall-to-wall, you know, big support. But, you mm-hmm. know, the National Retail Federation and the Chamber of Commerce uh, are very much uh, they're against the PRO Act. And, and, by the way, the PRO Act, which was just passed, yes, I think yesterday it was in the Congress, uh, protecting the right to organize, it d- does in legislation what Biden said rhetorically. That is, it prohibits a number of techniques that employers used today mm-hmm. uh, to, in effect, intimidate or propagandize mm-hmm. uh, against unions in the workplace. So, um, uh, and, and, and this, this, this law is, is, of course, universally opposed by, by all the major business interests. So, uh, it, yes, uh, Biden is uh, uh, certainly rhetorically, and in some, in some things he can do by executive order, uh, he, he, he is stepping way, well beyond what previous Democratic have done. So I realize because, you know, it's early, uh, we're barely a month and a half into his presidency, so we don't have a lot to go on yet. But again, uh, we haven't had a lot from uh, previous presidents in the modern era. So, you know, as I said, maybe the bar is very low, but is his claim, at least so far, to be the most union president you've ever seen, uh, as close to true as a lot of labor folks seem to be saying yeah, at this point? Yeah, yes, it is. The bar is low. You're right. The bar is very low. But he is. That's right. He is the most pro. I mean, here's the, let me make a distinction here. Yeah. Uh, Frank, Frank, go back to Franklin Roosevelt, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, Roosevelt, you know, was not always so forthcoming when it came to. Um, to pro-union statements, uh, he, I mean, he, he has a reputation for it. And the reason he has a reputation for it is that, in fact, we did get a tripling of union membership and a, and a, and a, and a hugely consequential increase in, in the power of organized labor mm-hmm. in the 30s and in the 40s. So, uh, and therefore, Roosevelt is remembered uh, finally by, by partisans of labor and, and liberals in general as a, as a pro-working person, pro-union person. Mm-hmm. Now, Biden, again, he's saying the right things, right. but this will all fade unless there actually is both legislation that is passed in some form, um, and, and, and then the reality on the ground. Will there be, in fact, a uh, you know, revival of trade unionism? I mean, it's one thing to have to say terrific things, and and good. All, I'm not being cynical. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. all power to him. But the history will will really, in a way, judge him by whether mm-hmm. or not there is in fact a a increase in uh, real wages, an increase in union membership, an increase in the power of organized labor. You know, it it feels at least as uh, if you know in in my time lifetime at least that unions have have sort of been largely left to fend for themselves without much support from uh, state lawmakers, to say the least much less at the federal level. And it seems that uh, their size and strength uh, has done nothing but become less and less in recent decades uh, in the bargain. Is, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, yes, that, yes. 
yes, that's true. And 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 the Democratic Party itself has been has been split on the question. I mean, for example, the the whole Silicon Valley world, mm-hmm. which is is still probably mainly supports the Democrats. I, I think Bezos, uh, Bezos, who owns Amazon, right. he, he's a de- he's a Democrat. I mean, he he owns the Washington Post. The Washington Post has been plummeting, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Trump and all his, his people for 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 years, and uh, so you know. But that's one wing of the de- so the, the Democratic Party itself is divided, and in all previous uh, Democratic administrations, the, uh, labor legislation that would have helped unions was introduced. Carter and Clinton and Obama. Uh-huh. Uh, in each case, they ran up, it ran up against first the filibuster, the sixty vote you know margin. Mm-hmm. But even when the Democrats you know, had 60 votes, and they did for a moment under Clinton and uh, and under uh, and under Obama, and, he, and I think Carter for a moment too. Uh, there were some Democrats, usually Southern Democrats, who just didn't didn't sign on, who 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 who, uh, who wouldn't agree, and so that's always been a huge problem um, uh, for the uh, for for the Democratic Party and why and you know getting getting a, a real real pro-labor legislation across. I mean, you can get, uh, by the way, I mean, raising the minimum wage is something else. Uh, this recent, the, the, the Rescue Act that just got passed mm-hmm. is something else. That's good for working people. But, but the, to strengthen the institutional power of unions is uh, a lightning rod. Is, is a, is a, it really strikes a, um, a nerve which is uh, even even more well beyond that of of uh, handing out fourteen hundred dollar checks, which I'm all in favor of, but right. it, or or something of that sort, you know. Well, you know, it it strikes me as odd. I mean, particularly given at least those of us who are in touch with you know reality, data, research, facts, etc., uh, that you know. At one point in our history, uh, we did have a strong and growing union presence, and it just so happens to sort of coincide with what was the uh, arguably the greatest, longest, the most prosperous expansion of the middle class in this country. It seems like the facts are on the side of labor and the unions and Democrats, and yet they don't. Uh, they, they haven't in recent years uh, embraced that. W- to what do you attribute that? Well, well, well we, we see this in the in the actually the two, uh, 2020 election or another election. That is, insofar as the Democratic Party uh, is uh, recruiting suburban, you know, professional middle mm-hmm. class uh, or even upper uh, middle class uh, um, uh, voters, and that say that was happening, and 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 then of course the parts of the working class. You know, although that there it's uh, contentious. Anyway, it's, you know, where is the Democratic Party going to find its base of support? Mm-hmm. And in so anyway, insofar as it moves to the to uh, to to a kind of suburban, you know, middle class wealth that they aren't the they aren't the union, uh, uh, you know, constituency. And no, but they, they but they should be. I mean, oh, yes, they should. It's, and, and, I think it's an easy sale that they have yeah. to make, and yeah. yet Democrats don't. It, it, it seems like you know, in recent decades, they have not been making that well, sale. I, they I, seem to be now, afraid I would of it. Say this, but I want to say, uh, kind of contradict myself in a sense, mm-hmm. and say that I do think among many Democrats, finally, it took a long time to realize that. Well, look, we are going to lose 
what has been always been the base of the Democratic Party, uh, you know, the, the, the logical base, that is the working class. We're going to mm-hmm. lose, well, at least the white working class. But even, but even, even in the last election when Latinos and some African-Americans uh, more voted for Trump, I mean, they were working class people who voted for Trump. So the, the, I think the Democratic Party, the, uh, understanding it's not, and it's not just handing out checks or, or, or high better welfare, much as, as good as that is. It's the, 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 what unions do is they, don't, they educate just by their existence, by, their, by the collective activity they engage in. Mm-hmm. They educate their membership to, to be in favor of, of, of the things that Democrats are in favor of. And insofar as the reason Ohio, and not to mention West Virginia, are, you know, red states. West Virginia is very red. I mean, these were, these were states that were absolutely proletarian. I mean, mm-hmm. West Virginia had, a, had class warfare of, the, of a European sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, 150 years ago, yeah. and the destruction of unionism in those states, and especially West Virginia, has tilted it way, way to the right. I mean, it's, it's, so you need to, you know, in in Birmingham, and Birmingham, of course, was once a uh, a heavily union town, uh, and I think you know one of the reasons there may be a possibility of a victory there in Bessemer is that kind of the. The, the memory, the, the generational memory of that unionism, especially among African Americans, uh, is still strong. So the Democratic Party needs to, uh, I think they are understanding that. Some of the, the people around Biden do understand that. And, and maybe so we're having a switch there, a shift in, in, in the well, strategy there. In, in, you know, in recent weeks, a number of Republicans, uh, Florida's uh, Marco Rubio comes to mind, yeah. uh, have been claiming that, oh, the Republican Party is now the party of the working yeah, middle yeah, class. Yeah. Donald Trump uh, ran on the, the, the promise of helping the forgotten man, supposedly, you know, workers in the Rust Belt who were ravaged from the collapse of American manufacturing and so forth, um, before then, you know, going on to forget the forgotten man with these. Uh, overwhelmingly corporate and uh, yeah. policies and, and that help the wealthy. Uh, but, you know, was there ever really a time in the U.S. when Republicans were the pro-labor party? And, and is there any real chance, as well, you see it, of that happening now? From the, civ- from the Civil War, they were, that's for sure. They were, they yeah. were in favor of the liberation of, of, uh, of uh, uh-huh. many, many, yes, the, the Civil War and post-Civil War. Actually, they had two things. They were in the so-called free labor, mm-hmm. and uh, that that meant both both free, freedom for capitalists, but also for workers. And and I but, and, and but there were periods also, by the way, uh, say say forty years ago, uh, even even the early Reagan period, and certainly before that, Northern Republicans, um, you know, in Buffalo and 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 you know the Nelson Rockefellers and even the George Romneys uh, and and people of that sort, they 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 had alliances with with, with labor, often the building trades. Often the more conservative unions, but they they were, and uh, uh, the um, and so, so and on like minimum wage legislation, you would it, it would it would be it remain it would be passed and remain high. You'd, you'd find you you look at the the, the, the maps and you find the Buffalo people Republicans from Buffalo mm-hmm. and from you know, from suburban Detroit and 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 Mass- they all voted for minimum wage legislation. The parties have become much more class identified. It, it's a total. Of course, the the Republican discussion of of you know being the party of the working classes, that what they mean is in, in, in purely in cultural terms. Really, mm-hmm. that's what they're talking mm-hmm. about. And um, and and the, the and insofar as there are no institutions of the working class like unions to counter that that cultural drift to the right, you you're going to have a, um, a, a, cons- uh, a the, the conservative. Let me give you one example. In the 1970s, in Mass in uh, West Virginia. 
there were wildcat strikes by coal miners against liberal textbooks, okay, in the, in the Charleston school system. Hmm. However, because the UMW was strong uh, and the steelworkers were strong, mm-hmm. West Virginia remained a liberal democratic state, even though the working class, uh, the, you know, the com- were, were conservative. I mean, they, they, were, they, were, they had Trumpite uh, ideas about, you know, about the textbooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's when they, with the destruction or the evaporation of those unions uh, and West Virginia has gone through this rapid, radical deunionization in the last few decades that there's no opposition to this uh, cultural conservatism, mm-hmm. and that sweeps the, sweeps the, the, the board. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, on, the, on the PRO Act specifically, and the reason yeah. I'm asking about this, because yeah. it did get you know, five votes from yeah. Republicans, which is not nothing. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they were, so they were Northern Republicans, yeah, Northern Northern. Uh, yeah, they were, but in uh, Alaska and so forth. Uh, yeah. But you know, there was zero Republicans on the American Rescue Plan and, and right. some of these other uh, things. So it seems like, oh, maybe there is some inroads there. Now, uh, Jacobin Magazine said the real test for Biden uh, and his support for labor will be if he's able to get you know the PRO Act through Congress, yeah. uh, which seems like a tall order right now. But yeah. um, they say that in one fell swoop, the PRO Act would transform the organization terrain for workers. So uh, very quickly, because I want to get to Alabama as well, what is the PRO Act? What would it do if it somehow miraculously was able to get through a Republican filibuster in the Senate? Well, yeah. Well, it does. It, it, it is quite a, kind of a radical uh, uh, a law. It would eliminate all the right to work uh, laws in the states that which have proliferated in recent, well, for many years, mm-hmm. but especially in the North. And right to work, of course, means that, that a union can't sign a contract in which, as a condition of employment, the workers have to pay dues to the union because of the services that they're rendered. Uh, it, we, uh, right to work weakens unions, and that's mainly in the South now, but now also in Michigan and West Virginia. So it would eliminate that. It would, it would, it would just, just cut that entirely out. That was something that came out of Taft-Hartley uh, 70 years ago or more, and that would just eliminate that entirely. Mm-hmm. It, it would also uh, stop a lot of this employer intimidation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would end these so-called captive audience meetings, which, which is standard operating procedure for, for companies, uh, where you, you, you force the workers to basically listen to propaganda right. against the union. It would also increase the, the penalties for um, uh, violating the labor law. And today, the, the penalties are so minuscule, so minuscule, that, that every, any uh, anti-union law firm uh, says, says to, the, to their the, their client, look, just just violate the law. <laughs> You'll pay right. a few thousand bucks, and, and it's tax deductible. So, <laughs> so the, you know, so the, the, it would actually make individuals uh, criminally uh, uh, responsible if they violate oh, the nice. law. So that's that's that stuff is important. Yeah, and um, you know. Uh, yeah, that that would that would that would be um, uh, important. It would also protect immigrants, uh, which, by the way, uh, regardless of your of your documented status uh, as a worker, whether you're a citizen or not, you have the right to participate in unions in the United States, and that's one of the, the, the in theory mm-hmm. that that is the case. Yeah. But of course, employers call the 
the uh, the immigration service if they if they if they have right. an immigrant workforce, you know. Well, let's discuss uh, this attempt now underway uh, to uni- unionize the yeah. uh, Bessemer, Alabama Air, uh, Amazon warehouse. In an interview this week, uh, Congressman Andy Levin of Michigan, uh, a former union organizer himself, told our friend David Dayan over at the American Prospect. Uh, while Levin was down there meeting with workers, that uh, this is the biggest union election in this century. Uh, is is that is that true? Uh, and if so, well, why I, does that matter? I mean, well, it might be. I mean, the union organizing it, 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 it might. Well, it, yeah, it might. I mean, it's six, only six thousand workers. That's sort of an indication of uh, how mm. uh, you know how few elections uh, unions right. are actually calling. Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, the the um, the the Amazon work uh, a warehouse. I mean. The fact that it's six thousand actually is not such a great thing because there are only about two or three thousand permanent employees, and the rest are sort of part timers, which Amazon wanted to make part of the unit because they thought they would be less likely to vote for a union. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, but as I said, it, it, it's in this traditionally black and pro-union area of of Birmingham, an industrial section of of Alabama, uh, and with, with a storied history, I mean, a very militant history going back 100 years. Um, and, and the fact is that African Americans in the United States tend to be more pro-union uh, than others, and so that's part of the, the thing. Also, of course, Amazon is really, it's, a, it's an industrial situation. I mean, we aren't talking about like a Walmart store, which, which has kind of this, this service ethos, and you have this you know, interface with the customers. Mm-hmm. You, we're talking about you know assembly line work. I mean, I, I you know I've toured these things, and and it's it's very rigorous. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, 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 speeded up work. Uh, there's nothing uh, glamorous about it at all. Uh, by the way, I would say this: the, the pay Amazon pays 15 bucks. I think maybe they're even going to 16. That's not the issue among people who who, who really work. There. The issue is the intense uh, tailorized speed up of work, mm-hmm. the, the fact that there's tremendous turnover, the company wants turnover, uh, the fact you, you can't have a career, you can't have a career at, at, a, at a company like uh, um, Amazon. You, you, they, they want the turnover because uh, they, 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 that, that keeps the wages low. Keeps and, them low, yeah. Really, yeah. Is, so. is uh, Amazon, which already makes billions in profits, obviously, is, yeah. is their greatest fear here that if unionization uh, uh, takes hold in Alabama, if it's successful there, then they're going to see that all over the country? Well, is that sure, yes, of course. That, that, that's, that's traditionally been the case. If you can do it one place, you can do it somewhere else. And, so firms like Amazon and, and Walmart, uh, are they just have uh, flying squadrons of, of executives who, who pour into the plant whenever there's a hint of unionization to Snuff it out. It's also true for Starbucks, uh, and uh, yeah, they don't want they don't want it anywhere. And that's um, that's what Levin says is now going on. He says that you know yeah. workers uh, in these plants, if if they want to talk with someone in management and HR, yeah. they've got to fill out a form on a computer yeah. before they can even yeah. see them. But now that there's this union vote going, apparently hundreds of uh, yeah, Amazon right. uh, managers have descended on the place to try to you know to to speak with right. the folks, and they push right. anti-union propaganda. Is that legal for them to do so in the middle? Oh, absolutely legal. Oh, totally legal. Uh, that's, the, that's the thing. The, the labor law has been distorted and transformed by uh, uh, generations of court decisions. Yes, everything that Amazon is doing is basically legal. That, that's the issue. It's not that they're illegal. It's that they're legal. <laughs> and that's why you need to change the mm-hmm. legislation. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, you, know, you have 300 men, in, usually men or women, in, you know, making $300,000 a year flying into these to 
these uh, small towns across the country and 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 and, and, and spending uh, hours of their of their valuable time trying to convince fifteen dollar an hour workers not to join the union. Well, that what that indicates is something is at stake, which is a big deal. And what's yeah. at stake is well, billions in wages, but also the, the sort of the the capacity of management to just run the shop exactly the way they want it, and that means flexibility for them and chaos for the workers. That is, if, if, if a ma- it's efficient for management to say, oh, you know, come in five hours this day and 12 hours the next, and, and next week you're off, that's efficient because, you know, you're only paying for workers when you need them. But from the point of view of the worker, it's chaos, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's the way retail and Amazon and and not to mention Uber and Lyft uh, mm-hmm. operate. When, uh, pr- Professor, very quickly, any idea? Uh, when does the vote end down there, and any prediction on, on how it'll come out at this point? March 31st. Okay. Uh, it'll be extremely close, mm. and uh, let me put it this way. I, I, I'm, a big, I'm a big supporter of unions, um, but I've also seen these kind of elections, uh, and so I think it, it'll be a very, at best, to be a very, very, very close but I, I wouldn't be surprised we, if it's defeated. We will, we will gird ourselves for disappointment uh, okay. and then hope for the best. Uh, last, last question for you uh, here, Professor. Uh, you know, the anti-union forces argument for decades has you know, been that ultimately, oh, unions are bad for business, bad for workers themselves. Looking back historically, is there any legitimate support for that argument? As I noted, you know, one of the best periods for uh, unions in this country just also happened to be one of the best periods for the country and for the economy overall. Is there any, you know, actual legitimate support to this idea that unionization is somehow bad for really anyone? No, (laughs) there is no support for that. It is good both uh, economically in, in an immediate sense and even more important, probably politically, because it helps sustain a kind of social democratic uh, ethos and, and policy block in the in the country, mm-hmm. and uh, no doubt about that. And, and one of the reasons for the for the deterioration in American uh, kind of everything, uh, every, from race relations to to stagnating living standards, because of the weakness of unions in the last fifty years, forty years. Really. Well, let's change that. Thank you. Professor Nelson Lichtenstein, he is the uh, labor historian, distinguished professor in the Department of History at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, You can follow him on the Twitters at Nelson Lichtens, the number one. Lichtens is L-I-C-H-T-E-N-S, the number one. Nelson Lichtens, one. Uh, Professor, really great speaking with you today. I hope you don't mind if we shout out again in the near future. Perhaps we'll be able to have a happier discussion if you are wrong and if Amazon actually does unionize down there in Alabama. Well, I hope I am wrong. But yes, <laughs> good, good to talk to you. Thank you, sir. All right, quick break. I, I promised Desi we were going to finish with a song today. Yes. <laughs> I think we'll fit it in. All that right. is Straight Ahead on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1925. That was the day the first civil lawsuit for damages was filed on behalf of the Radium Girls. 
During the 1910s and 20s, radium was all the rage. It was considered a medical cure-all for everything from blindness to asthma. The U.S. Radium Corporation employed hundreds of young women in New Jersey and Illinois to paint radium onto watch dials and military instruments. Women workers were instructed to shape the paintbrushes to a fine point with their lips in order to paint the numbers onto the watch faces. They soon fell ill. Many complained of losing scores of teeth and shattered and rotting jaws. The death toll began to rise. U.S. Radium and other related companies initially tried to smear the women as suffering from syphilis. Catherine Wiley of the New Jersey Consumers League began investigating the use of radium by dial painters. She was also concerned about how emissions affected the community surrounding the plant. Wiley enlisted the help of Alice Hamilton, mother of industrial medicine and occupational toxicology. The chief medical examiner of Essex County determined the women suffered from radium exposure. They were exhaling radon gas. The findings were earth-shattering for the industry. Case proceedings were highly publicized in the press. Extremely frail and sick young women appeared in court, barely able to walk or testify. The company agreed to settle the case. $10,000 for each woman, a $400 a year pension, and medical care. Women at the Ottawa plant suffered for years before finally learning the truth about their job-related illnesses. The case impacted fields related to occupational safety and health. It also fundamentally broadened scientific understanding of radioactive elements. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Hey, this is Brad. You're listening to an encore presentation of the Bradcast. We'll be back soon. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, everybody hands go up. And they stay there. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yes, Joe Biden is doing a lot of winning today. <laughs> this just in, the Senate has now confirmed Michael Regan as the uh, EPA chief, and he will be the first uh, black man to lead the agency, play a major role in Biden's climate plans, whatever yes. they turn out to be. So uh, there's some more good news for the president. Also, he announced uh, what seems to be some good news concerning an additional 100 million doses of Johnson & Johnson single-shot COVID-19 vaccine on Wednesday. Administration officials told the New York Times that the doses are expected to be distributed in the second part of the year. Last week, Biden announced there would be enough vaccine supply for all adults, by the end of May, more than 93 million doses have now been administered in the U.S. as of Wednesday morning, inoculating some 9.7 percent of the population, according to the CDC. Uh, meanwhile, up in Alaska, they're now giving a vaccine to anyone over the state over the age of 16. Huh. Guess I need to move to Alaska. <laughs> um, so for whatever, of course, they don't have that many people, but they've got a lot of area to get it out to. And they are doing well. For example, in the Nome census area, over 60 percent 
of residents over uh, age 16 and over have now received at least one shot. Some regions are nearing or exceeding 90 percent vaccination rates among seniors. Good for them. So that's good news. Now, there is one good thing and only one good thing after all of these years that I have credited Congress with from during the horrific eight years of the George W. Bush administration. Do you remember what that is, Desi Doyen? Nope. Well, this time of year, we have to give them credit for it, and that is the expansion of daylight savings time. Ah. The only good thing that happened during eight years of George W. Bush. Uh, So we're going back to daylight savings time on uh, Sunday. I'm very excited about that. And to date, I have only been able to come up with one good thing as well to have happened during the Trump years. But this didn't come from Congress. Uh, Do you know what it is? No. In my opinion, it is the emergence of Randy Rainbow. (laughs) Yes. uh, Who I think is a national treasure. He is still with us in the Biden years, apparently. And he has a new video out this week regarding vaccines to help play us out today. Welcome back. I'm joined now by a man some people believe is the president of the United States, Joseph Robinette Biden. Robinette? Yes. Don't even have to write a joke about that. Um, (laughs) Joe, can I call you Joe? No. Girl, we have a lot to talk about. A lot to talk about. As the coronavirus continues to wreak havoc, Americans are getting restless and frustrated, if you know what I mean. One of the disappointments (laughs) when we came into office is the circumstance relating to how the administration was handling COVID was even more dire than we thought. We thought they indicated there was a lot more vaccine available. <laughs> and it didn't turn out to be the case. Because we're doing so much testing. Huh? Oh. <clears throat> Excuse me, I think I must have fallen a- <gasps> You don't ask Biden tough questions. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, you know, I'm still having flashbacks. <laughs> Sometimes he visits me in my dreams. So we're pushing as hard as we can to get more vaccine manufactured. You now say we'll have enough supply for every adult to be vaccinated by May. Does this mean I can go to Cancun for spring break with Ted Cruz and the gals? Well, I didn't say that. Mr. Biden, bring my vaccine. Keep me protected from COVID-19. Tell me the trick to how I'm a Fix up that magic Pfizer or Moderna. Call you sleepy, but you're pretty woke. I'm so tired of quarantine. Mr. Biden, bring my vaccine. Please bring me Joe. Hey Joe Biden, where's my vaccine? I need a rollout that's good for a queen. Grab your syringe, but make sure you clean it. And stick it in me like you really mean it. <laughs> Biden. Hey, I'm Mr. Biden. I'm not afraid. Yeah, I'm really not afraid. Inoculate me so I can't get late. I don't mean to sound obscene. But I want my freaking vaccine. Ladies and gentlemen, the Robinettes. Oh, won't you stay? I'm numb. Bring my vaccine. I want to trick or treat when we hit Halloween. 
<laughs> I will, of course, post to the uh, to that actual video. That was Randy Rainbow uh, when we post our show tonight at brandblog.com. All right, we got to get out. My thanks to our great producer, Desi Doyen. Thank you. <laughs> and to my great guest today, Professor Nelson Lichtenstein of UC Santa Barbara. And, of course, as ever, thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program... Download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, a service made possible by you. Yes, you, those of you anyway, who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the twiz Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. See you there. Until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Girl, I'm so tired of quarantine.